0: So I'm Charles Raison. I'm a psychiatrist and uh, someone who's done scientific studies on meditation now for the better part of a decade. Not much of a meditator myself, but fortunately today I am sitting with Sharon Salzberg, who's one of the country's most beloved meditation teachers, and who's really made a, an amazing uh, specialty of, of making meditation accessible to folks. She's a best-selling author of the books Real Happiness and Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness. Uh, Sharon uh, does a remarkable job of introducing ancient concepts and teachings uh, uh, related to meditation in ways that make uh, contemporary Americans living in the society that we do sort of grasp, comprehend, and resonate with. Uh, she's a co-founder of the meditation, the Insight Meditation Center in Barre, Massachusetts uh, which was co-founded by her in 1974 uh, and she has decades of meditation teaching experience. We're really uh, honored to have her visit the University of Arizona again this year, uh, sharing her wisdom and, and teachings about the relationship of loving kindness to the spiritual path. So, thank you for sitting down and, and, and talking with her for a second. Let me just start with a, a general question, but it really, I think, gets to the core of, I think, why many of us are interested in meditation for one reason or other, which is the question, of, of how it impacts people's lives. So you've been teaching meditation for years. I, I know this is kind of a hard question to answer, but, but can you talk to me a little bit about how you feel meditation has personally changed or benefited your life?
1: <laughs> well, it is a little bit hard because yeah. I started when I was 18, so and I'm fat, far, far from 18 at <laughs> this point. But, uh, you know, so it's, it's been the core of so much of my life. I will tell you that when I went to India, which is how I, I learned meditation, I went through college. Um, in this program I was uh, very confused I was very unhappy I had a very disrupted childhood um, lots of loss and separation and conflict and, and I, also, I came from one of those families where uh, so much was going on but nothing was ever really talked about like many people's families and so I really struggled terribly with the feelings inside of me and I felt I needed something um, that would help me look at all those emotions deal with them in a better way uh, be a happier person, and, and there I was. I was 18. I was in college, and this program opportunity happened where you could create a project and go anywhere in the world. And, and so I thought, I'm going to go to India and learn how to meditate. And this was, you know, it was like 1970s, so these things were happening. You know, and so they said, okay, go. And, and that's how I actually started. And, and I, I really do believe I found exactly what I was looking for in meditation. I wasn't interested in Uh, something religious or philosophical or or based on a belief system, I wanted to know if there were some very practical tools I might use that would help me be happier.
0: Yeah, That's interesting. And and what made you... How did you know enough about meditation before you went to know that that's what you were going to look for, if you know what I mean?
1: That's even funnier, because I was... um, uh, By the time I was 18, because I had skipped a few grades in New York City, as one often did in that that time, I was uh, a junior in college. So... In my sophomore year, I needed a philosophy course. It was one of the requirements. And honestly, as far as I can remember, it was kind of a haphazard thing. I looked at the offerings, and I thought, I'll take that Asian philosophy course. It's on Tuesday. I need a Tuesday course. Let me do that. And, and that's where I learned about meditation.
0: Interesting. And, and Did you go to India knowing where you were headed? I mean, had you sort of scattered it out where you you had your mark, if you know what I mean? Or did you go and look around?
1: I went and looked around because I had such a particular range of desires. You know, I didn't want something um, that was going to demand, you know, like a conversion to a belief system. I didn't want to reject anything else. I wanted something so practical and, and pragmatic and useful to me that it actually took a while wandering around and and a lot of it was kind of odd you know how these things happen it was almost accidental it seemed and I heard that there was a I'd been there for months and not not able to find what I wanted and I heard that there was an international yoga conference going to happen in New Delhi so I went to that thinking oh I'll, you know I'll find a teacher there and And that turned out to be an awful experience. It was was so dispiriting. The low point was when all these swamis and gurus were up on the stage pushing and shoving against each other to be the first to grab the mic and speak. And I thought, oh, no, I will never find it. But as it turned out, Dan Goleman, who at that time was a graduate student uh, studying meditation, uh, delivered a paper at that yoga conference. And he mentioned he was on his way to an intensive 10-day meditation retreat no frills, no like intense cultural overlay, just kind of the straight stuff. And I thought that's it,
0: and it was it. Interesting. So did you, you just did you follow him to the ten day retreat? Yeah, yeah, you did. That's interesting. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit about the who you found and you know what happened.
1: Well, what I really found was it was like an immersion course in in meditation. And um, the idea was really that uh, meditation is like a skills training. Mm-hmm. Uh, First of all, skills, training, and concentration that most of us are fairly scattered or distracted, if not in every Mm -hmm. uh, arena of life, at least in some. And, And you don't need to be an experienced meditator to know that. You just sit down to think something through and you're gone and Our minds jump to the past and we go over and over and over and over some situation which we now can't rectify, (laughs) or our minds jump to the future and we create a scenario that has not happened and may never happen and we're filled with anxiety about that. So we're all over the place, and the theory behind concentration is that we can learn to gather that very scattered and distracted attention and energy and settle, uh, be much more centered. So that was the, the basis of the training, and building on that, uh, it's a skills training in mindfulness in really being able to take that uh, greater presence and balance and apply it to looking at emotions and the body and relationship and everything, really. Um, so it's a much more open awareness. And, and building on that, also, it's a training. It's considered a training in qualities like loving kindness and compassion. Yeah,
0: yeah. which I so, will come back to because that's, that's yeah. an interesting question about how mindfulness and, and, and love and compassion hook up with each other. So, did you, I mean, it's just interesting. Did you Did you know the first day into the retreat that you'd sort of found a path that was going to shape your life this way?
1: I felt like I knew the first moment that I, I heard the teacher give the instruction. Yeah. And I thought, oh, right. I mean, I had no idea it would do this, you know, yeah. that that I would teach or that I would start a center or write books or anything. But, but you had an immediate
0: sense that yeah. it was it had this sort of pragmatic element yeah. that yeah. would help sort of yeah. organize, calm the mind. yeah. And, 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 and and that was not something that, you know, because one of the interesting things now is that meditation in various forms, intense and watered down, is sort of floating everywhere in our culture, right? But in 1970, I guess that wasn't really so much the case, was it? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I think... I and mean, it's largely because of folks like you that, that it's yeah. so much floating around now.
1: Yeah, no, I think that is that is true. And, uh That didn't happen because I had that intention, you know, that I had a master plan. (laughs) Like, let me, you know, it just happened um, as a consequence of uh, the tremendous benefit I and my colleagues received ourselves. And so, coming back as teachers, we just we just began teaching. But um, I don't think, honestly, I'm I'm trying to look back. I don't think I would have gone to India if I didn't have to. You know, if if all of these methods and uh, techniques were available, or at least some <laughs> were available uh, in New York or Buffalo, which was where I went to college, or anywhere I, yeah. I would have gone there.
0: But people or, weren't really talking about training attention. I mean, these are ideas we sort of take for granted now. Many of us, they they have filtered into the culture. People study it and all this sort of stuff. But yeah. I, mean, I guess you know, those many years ago, these were really fairly shocking, radical, amazing ideas. Oh
1: yeah, even 1974 when I, I came back from I came back. I, I went to India, came back to finish school, and went back to India, and I finally came back in 1974, and I'd be at a party or some social situation, and people would say to me, what do you do? And I had come back with the uh, uh, insistence of my own teachers that I teach, so I'd say, I teach meditation, and they would kind of go, ooh, that's weird, or, or sometimes they would say, oh, did you meet the Beatles? You know, which I hadn't, like, they went when I was still in high school, um, And nowadays, uh, even in sort of odd situations like coming back into the country through customs and immigration, they'll say, what do you do? And I'll say, I teach meditation. And the single most common response I hear is, I'm so stressed out. I could really use some of that. Although my favorite response is, my partner should really meet you. That would be really good. And I also hear, um, I tried that once and I failed at it. And that really concerns me. Yeah. You know, people say I failed at it because I couldn't stop thinking or I couldn't make my mind blank. And I realize how many ideas are just floating out there about what we should be experiencing and how we'd all benefit. I think from, from just some clarity.
0: Absolutely. So that, let's talk about that for a second because, you know, so so you know, I'm you know not a very serious
1: meditator. <laughs> i make no
0: bones about it, sadly for me. But uh, you know, I'm a fairly serious researcher of meditation, right? And, and one of the things that struck me is that meditation has become one of these things that, that just sounds good to many people, right? So we do these studies, and people want to come in, and they're all excited. And then they, they sit down and do the meditation, and there is, for many people, I think, a disillusionment. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we get a fair, and we're not the only ones, we get a fairly high dropout rate because it, it turns out to be Work. So, you know, talk, I mean, I think that's exactly right. People, you know, the, the attempt, my experience is the attempt to be mindful ensures failure. If, if you have as your goal that you, you write, because the, the, there's this paradoxical nature to it, that the, it's the attempt, it's the failure in many ways that's sort of the teacher in a way. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Talk to me, what are the things you find that are the things that people, if they knew about it, they might not toss in the talent so quick?
1: Um, That's a great question. I think there are many things like that. And one is actually failure is kind of the point Um, because in something like concentration training, we know that it's not going to be 800 breaths before your mind wanders. You know, that if if the breath is the object that you're trying to settle attention on, it's going to be one or two, maybe four if you're having a really good Mm -hmm. run, Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. know. But Uh, it's uh, not going to be a 1,000. And, and that's known, that's understood And that's not a problem because We say that one of the most powerful <coughs> Excuse me, one of the most powerful Points of the whole training Is the moment when you realize Your attention has wandered It's already gone, you've already gotten lost In some way, or you've fallen asleep Or something And then comes that moment When you think, oh, it's been quite some time Since I last <laughs> felt a breath <laughs> yeah. That's considered the critical moment Because first of all we practice letting go of whatever has taken us away. Thought, fantasy, sensation, whatever it is, we practice letting go. It's what one of my own teachers called exercising the letting go muscle. And then we practice beginning again. So without chastising ourselves and blaming ourselves and going on a rant and feeling like a failure, that's one of the um, kind of secret uh, developments of loving kindness and compassion right there. We practice beginning again. Being kind to ourselves, and if you have to do that 70 billion times in a 20-minute session, that's not considered a problem. Right. That's the actual training. But that is so unbelievable.
0: Yes, to us. Yes, it is. Although it's odd, I've never thought this before. But you know, when you were talking, I was, you know, that you've just described in many ways a, a little analogy for what people say with well, substance abuse problems have to do. Right? Many conditions in life are exactly that. Right? You fall off the wagon. That's right. You've lost your, you know, you've lost your concentration. And then the question, the the, the thing that, that separates people that do well from people that do poorly are the ones that a recognize they've fallen off the wagon in whatever mm-hmm. whatever the particular wagon is, and then are able without catastrophizing or just saying, well, you know, I've been doing this and I'm just going to go all the way down. That's the right. That's right. So that's the same. Yeah. It's that same. So yeah. there's something about that willingness to
1: start over yeah oh absolutely it's really really crucial and that's a beautiful um, elaboration of that you know into into life because it does come into life and we don't practice meditation for that say 20 minute period to become a great meditator yeah. we practice to help us in life and that's one of the ways it really does and and also I just think real clarity about what to expect and what not to expect because I don't think most people will trust that information and probably need to hear it again and again and again and again. The purpose is not to make your mind blank. We're not trying to eradicate all thinking. If you have, like, only crummy thoughts and not spiritual and lofty thoughts, it's not a problem. The whole uh, premise, certainly, of mindfulness is that we're about changing our relationship to what's happening, not changing what's happening. You know, so we're so content driven in so many ways I think and we judge ourselves so mercilessly like oh no I had a bad thought I had 80 thoughts whatever it is and, and instead to be reminded over and over that the whole point is to change that relationship so maybe the thought comes but it doesn't carry you away mm-hmm. yeah, you know you can drop it something like that and
0: it, it, do you ever find that you get into some people get into infinite regresses though, where then they beat themselves up for not changing their relationship I mean it really is very interesting but that, that seems to me to be just Hugely impactful point. Of course, that point has made its way now into to some psychotherapeutic things, where you know, uh, acceptance commitment mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. where people there's this recognition that one of the things that that for many people who struggle with depression, the thing that will take them down the bad foxhole and lead to a relapse is you know that unlike people that don't have that problem who have negative thoughts and sort of let them go, the depressed person gets stuck on. Oh, right. I really right. Are such a, an it's, yeah. It, it, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's exactly that process you're talking about yeah. that the meditation training attempts yeah. to to circuit That's to, right. To, yeah, yeah. So, tell talk, talk to me a little bit about how you see the relationship of loving kindness meditation, which you've done such an amazing thing of you know, sort of of making it accessible to people in the West, uh, the relationship between that and mindfulness. Had you know. It, this is a, a research question that's sort of interesting too for many of us is how do, they, how do they stand in relationship to each other and you said something that's just really intriguing right now that, that the act that, that, that loving kindness or being able to have loving kindness with self uh, helps one let go yeah. but tell me more about that because that's such an interesting area
1: well I think, I think that um, in the development of concentration where we're constantly letting go and coming back and letting go and coming back loving kindness is like the secret ingredient even if it's never given voice because yeah. uh, you can't let go and start over without some loving kindness we just go down another route you know blaming ourselves and chastising ourselves and comparing ourselves to other people and that can be a long that's a long path That's yeah. yeah, <laughs> uh, a familiar that's path religion. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. you know so uh, lots of iterations on that path and and um So even if it's not articulated, we're actually deepening loving kindness for ourselves every time we practice letting go and starting over. But I think of of mindfulness training really as kind of uncluttering our attention so that the normal filters aren't so strong. Um, I've got to get rid of that thought or I have to hold on to that feeling or... Uh, this is going to last forever or, or whatever it might be, that, that tends to come in very strongly and really distort our relationship to what we're perceiving in the moment. Um, so we kind of loosen the grip of some of those filters in mindfulness. And I think of loving kindness practice in terms of attention training being more about flexibility. <clears throat> you know, like if we're accustomed to, at the end of the day, thinking about our day, thinking about ourselves, and all we remember is what we did wrong and the mistakes we made and the really stupid thing we said at lunch at that meeting, so much so that our whole sense of who we are and all that we will ever be, like, collapses around that really stupid thing we said. The loving-kindness process is almost like asking ourselves, anything else happened today? Like, anything good? Any good within me? So we consciously shift our attention or the way we pay attention to ourselves, But, you know, so many people have the fear that it's kind of phony and make-believe. and But it's not. It's not like you're saying it oh, wasn't that a brilliant and witty thing I <laughs> yeah. said at lunch at that meeting. Maybe it was really stupid, you know, and there are yeah. consequences for that. But that's not all that we are ever. So it's that rigidity of perception. Like, I am only an idiot, you know, and I always will be. And we're saying, hey, there's good within me. May I be happy? Yes. And, and uh, we practice having a greater flexibility of attention in terms of who we pay attention to. Like, what about all those many beings that appear in our lives that are, you know, checkout person in the supermarket or something like that we look right through
0: yeah.
1: that we objectify to the extent that they might as well be a piece of furniture. You know, what happens when we look at them yeah. instead of look through them? And that's what we're doing oh, through the loving kindness practices, oh. calling people like that to mind and wishing them well. And so... Um, It's not really meant to uh, kind of force us to have a feeling we don't actually have, but to be so flexible with the way we pay attention that it's like we're creating the space for
0: for other kinds of connection to come forward. Talk a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, about some of the pragmatics. You know, uh, I think many people have a sense that that what we think of as meditation is something about things like watching the breath, learning to focus, and then becoming... Sort of more non-judgmentally aware of, of one's thoughts and feelings, I think. I, I think mindfulness practices, and, and, and of course, you teach something that is often known as meta—not uh, mindfulness—compassion practices are less well understood. Mm-hmm. So, I, you, you, just a quick primer on sure. how it works. <laughs> sure. I
1: um, mean, instead of centering our attention on the feeling of the breath, we would center our attention on the silent repetition of certain phrases. Um, and the phrases are almost like um, an offering, it's like a gift giving so the first recipient is ourselves, we offer these phrases to ourselves which means we're paying attention to ourselves in a certain way and then we offer the phrases to others so common phrases, are, they need to be really simple because you don't want to like always be thinking, what should I use for you you know, like so they need to be very general so that you can basically use the same phrases you know, in most cases like um, with few exceptions so it could be like, may I be happy, may I be peaceful. And uh, it's not meant to be in a tone like begging, you know, or, <laughs> <laughs> or yeah, Exactly. You know, <laughs> yeah. but it's like if I gave you a birthday card and said, may you have a happy birthday, may you have a great new year. It, it's something like that. And we start with ourselves. And then using those same phrases, maybe we visualize someone who's really helped us. Um, or just call them to mind um, someone who 's really uh, either they 've helped us directly or maybe we 've never met them, but they 've really inspired us and and we feel really good about them. We offer the phrases to them, and then a friend and then a neutral person, someone like that checkout, check-out person or yeah. uh, dry cleaner That's is fun. a favorite one and uh, and then maybe someone we have a little bit of difficulty with, not. Right away the person who is the most outrageous um, to even imagine, but someone we have a little bit of annoyance or conflict with, just to see what happens. If you know, When, when we have some difficulty with somebody, we tend to go over the list of their faults again and again and again and again and, yeah. again, and there's no room for anything else. And so we're just trying to see what happens if we include that, the list of their faults, but not limit that. Yeah you know, that awareness of them to that. And so we kind of play, and then ultimately all beings everywhere. We just have this kind of global offering. That's right.
0: And and, and when you teach it, over what kind of time frame do you move from sort of aspirational wishing towards the self to the sort of whoever you most want to, you know, you know, bring the net? <laughs> and, and beyond. beyond. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: it's, you know, when I teach it, I teach it so that uh, I teach whatever time frame I have, yeah. um, because my goal in teaching is that people leave with enough confidence and clarity that if they want to continue, they can continue
0: so you 'd yeah. run through each of the phases yeah. and, and have them try out yeah the...
1: that 's right it 's unlikely you will say we have a weekend that you will resolve everything yeah. you know <laughs> even with yourself in the weekend, but you have the tool
0: yeah, yeah. you know so but what do you, and, and what do you find when people do the Aspirational sort of practices, wishing practices for people they really, really struggle with. Do you get? You must get interesting reports about people mm-hmm. finding it difficult, or sometimes finding it liberating. Or you, do you find? I mean, how does that?
1: Um, it's difficult for sure, and it's it's a, a very tender realm. You don't want to force anything, but it's also um, I don't know that. I, I think usually. If there's a shift, it's in the it's in the um fields of compassion. you get a sense of poignancy about this person, like look at their choices yeah. and um given that we all want to be happy, given that we're all so vulnerable to loss and to change, we actually share so much and uh it's a little bit like one of those feelings like maybe you have a friend or a family member who says they're really lonely, but they're so off-putting. Mm-hmm. The way they talk to people, the way they treat people, and you look at them sometimes and they go, no wonder, you know? Course, yeah. It's like no one wants to get near you. But sometimes that realization shifts and you think, oh, man, look how you've blown it. Yeah. You know, like you, you are really lonely and it could be different, but it's not. Yes. Your choices are just so bad. And look, what, look at the consequences of that. And you don't even see why, you know? Yes. So there's so much poignancy in that. And, yeah, sure and So it's a little bit like that feeling, I think, that, that starts to emerge. I will also say that one of the very interesting things, which may make it impossible to research, I'm not sure, I found about loving kindness and compassion practice is that so often the effects um, are not felt most directly and certainly not most immediately in the formal practice. Yeah. You might feel it more strongly if you run into that cousin
0: yes. at a party. Yes.
1: And you realize, oh, you know, I'm different.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is what our some of the some of the kids, college kids, uh-huh. in the first study were with compassion training. These were this is what people would say is it, exactly that. You know, they would they would run into the person and it would mess with their minds a little bit. You know, they would. Yeah. They would uh, uh, you, you said something right? interesting here you that know, I've never thought of before either, which is you know the the, the, the premise of compassion practice is is, is this strong shared destiny of yeah. the person doing yeah. in the meditation and the person that you're thinking about. Yeah. Do people ever notice that, that you know, so you think about somebody that's really causing you trouble as you, just, and, and as you noted, it's, it's, it's pretty easy to see people's shortcomings when you have those sort of feelings towards them. But you, you said, you know, that, that we all make these sort of choices that cause us trouble. Has it been your experience that people sort of get a sense by, by, by doing the practice for somebody they really have conflict with that by beginning to see that person as somebody that's made that because of the way they're whatever, you know, even if you well they deserve it, they act a certain way, blah, 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 but still they suffer those consequences. It's sort of a window. It is does it ever work backwards where people then begin to see themselves, you know what I'm saying, in some sort of special way, because in particular with somebody that they really have upset feelings for. It's easy to see the negative. There's something that's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So it really is true in that way that the, the, the sort of the enemy, the person one conflicts with, is a powerful teacher.
1: He's a very powerful teacher.
0: Yeah, yeah. That that's one of the concepts that's been most amazing to me about I think sort of compassion meditation is that is that particular idea. Um, what something that, that that's interesting. I, you know, so some of the work we've done has been more. Related that the, the compassion practices come from a slightly different sort of ancient tradition, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and I, we've done this work with, uh, you know, uh, Tibetan Buddhist scholars, especially my like good friend Geshe Lo Song. And one of the things that's not in traditional, you know, I'm going with this, in traditional Tibetan practices is compassion for the self. I, know. Uh-huh. I, I mean, I, I've seen these sort of transcripts of early, early conversations with the Dalai Lama where he's like, what, what do you mean, low self esteem? Oh yeah,
1: that was me. <laughs> that was, <really> <laughs> <It> was me. <laughs> <laughs> well, can you talk <laughs> a little
0: bit about that experience and sort of because there's something that's, that it is a very intriguing thing that people sometimes say is unique to the West. I don't know if I believe that, but there is something cultural there. Yeah,
1: yeah. Different. I don't know if it, it wasn't uh, particularly about low self esteem. This was eighty nine or ninety when I was at a Mind and Life conference in Darmstadt. I had the opportunity to ask the Dalai Lama question, and so I said, um, "What do you think of of self hatred?" Yeah. And he said, "What's that?" <laughs> it was really interesting because there were, you know, philosophers and uh, scholars and psychologists in the room, everyone like jumped in, you know, and he was like, "Huh." And, and he said, uh, is it some kind of nervous disorder? <laughs> you know? and it, was like, it was very funny. It was very funny, just that like kind of complete incomprehension. And this is not to deify Asian culture, you know, yes. or, or Tibetan culture, but I think that rock-bottom belief that if we really knew who we were, it would be a pretty sad story, that's different. Yes. You know, there's such a sense of potential, even if you're a mess, even if you've fallen apart, even if you're far, far, far away from being a kind and happy person, you have the potential. And it's believed uh, that potential is never, ever destroyed. It may be covered over, it may be hidden from us, but it is never, ever destroyed. So wherever you are, whatever you've done in your life, you've got that potential. And so you can get back to it.
0: In fact, it cannot be destroyed. It cannot be destroyed. Exactly. And and there's a sense that one's weaknesses, and flaws, or they use the word adventitious, but that they are non-essential. Yeah, the what visiting. Yes, yeah, the, yeah, the visiting the nasty
1: districts.
0: Yeah, yeah. Know. Yeah. Uh, so so in 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 the in the Theravada tradition, you know, that was sort of informed your early training. Is there that same assumption and and so this the, the compassion for the self is that more this is just me my ignorance is is, is that more recognized in the Theravadan context or was that something that you folks elaborated?
1: No, 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 it was right there. I mean it I, I mean I I brought the Practice um, to the West, just as it had been given to me, and uh, and it starts with yourself. So that's the difference
0: within the different different Buddhist schools.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's right there, and you start with yourself. And um, I went to Burma in 1985 to do three months of intensive loving kindness training, and uh, I did three weeks of loving kindness just for myself and a benefactor, you know, by that the end of that period. And so um, it's a tremendous platform um, for the greater extension of... But, you know, there's also, um, as a teacher, I feel great flexibility. You know, in the West, they say, you know, in, in Burma, like they say you start with yourself because that's easiest. Yeah. And you're trying to build confidence in the technique. So oh, in the West, not always the easiest <laughs> no. by any means. And so... You know, I, I tell people, not because it's second best, but because it's the right thing to do. If you have great difficulty offering love and kindness to yourself, start with a friend. You know, tuck yourself in later. Uh, do it in the way that is actually going to work for you.
0: Yeah. And so one of the things, so when Gisho san <clears throat> decided that, that, that there needed to be compassion for the self in this, in this uh, the program that he developed, he uh, he kind of stuck to his, his his traditional guns a little bit in that he he framed that aspirational wish to be happy and free of suffering sort of in terms of of, of helping people recognize that if one wants that the the best way to achieve that is. to change one's attitudes one's behavior you know in other words you start kind of moving toward a mm-hmm. path where you're not mm-hmm. as afflicted emotionally. Mm-hmm. is that is, is that sort of a similar thing in the, the meta tradition or, or how, how I so?
1: think it could be seen that way I mean basically I see loving kindness and compassion practice as a form of generosity and like any kind you know and we use material generosity just sometimes as an example because it's so much more concrete and it helps us understand you know how other things are working so Um, In material generosity, there's some uh, ingredient, like some sense of inner abundance or sufficiency that allows us to give, because you could have a huge amount externally, but not have a feeling you have nearly enough, and so no matter how much you've compiled or accumulated, Mm -hmm. it's much harder to give. So it's that inner sense that um, the loving kindness for oneself is also working on, because if you feel, and this is very important for caregivers, for example, if you feel depleted, you're exhausted, you're overcome, you're not going to have a whole lot of juice, you know, for continuing to give right. or, or serve or care even, you know, it's like it's too much. And so it's building up that resourcefulness, that almost resiliency that the loving kindness for oneself is doing. So, um, and it works in that way. I mean, I think what uh, Geshe Lopes was talking about is almost like a further elaboration of that yeah. but I see it almost just in terms of sheer energy yeah. it's like because otherwise it's like you can't go on Yes. and and so it's not selfish and it's not self-absorbed and it's not self-preoccupied it's not a mistake you know it's it's really and I always come back to that example of material giving because it helps me a lot just right. to and, continue and to give you have to
0: have something to give that's yeah. the other thing right? yeah. you have to be willing to give it but people are more likely to if they've got something to give, and and, in, and when people feel that there's an excess, they're more likely to give too. I mean, it's kind of interesting, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, when, yeah. When bad financial times come, you know, donations plummet because everybody starts. You know, a sense of, of lack is a great way to make people kind of, you know, that's right. everything in, and that's right. And and, and and lock the gates, and so that sense, because I, you know, one of the one of the interesting things about compassion practices is, of course. And this is sort of a mystery. In the although I think we've learned some in the last ten years, but you know, there's certain ways that people relate powerfully to the emotions of others that increase depression, increase yeah. anxiety, yeah. like yeah. Your emotional contagion. Yeah. You know, you, yeah. you, 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 and so this idea that you're going to somehow become more emotionally connected and vulnerable with the pain and suffering of others, uh, you know, sometimes people raise half an eyebrow, right? But but my understanding is that it's this that that, that, that that as with all things human, if you feel that you've got a means to do something about it, that's right. You know, if you've got a means to cope, if you can be proactive towards it, that it, it, that's the trick. that seems to avoid mm-hmm. that feeling of despair and and, and giving up. So that, this is what we're talking about, I guess. In a way, is that yeah, you know, yeah. You know, You've got the resources to help.
1: Yeah, and I would say, just out of my training, you know, that another ingredient um, in in Uh, Not plunging into despair is equanimity. It's wisdom. It's realizing that, you know, I'm going to do everything I can. And ultimately, this is not my universe to control. I can't be responsible for making it all better. I can contribute. You know, I can participate. I can engage because that's the right thing to do. But as soon as I feel like I'm in charge, it's, it's over, you know, because life doesn't seem to behave according yeah. nicely yeah. according yeah. very yeah. sadly yeah. according yeah. to our dictates you know so there's got to be some balance there
0: um, so that touches upon something I mean so you know meditation is widely taught in the secular context you know I mean even folks don't need to become Buddhist to, to, to benefit from, from the practices that derived from Buddhist practice but something that I've often wondered about is what you're touching upon now which is that there is it's not a specific theology, but you've said something that, that is, is a, you know, it's an articulation of a proposal about a very deep truth about the universe, which is that suffering is sort of inherent to the realm we find ourselves in, and that, 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 it, that there are hardcore limits to its perfectibility. A, okay, be, before we stop, can you, how does that, there, there's something there that's very deep, because if you don't have that perspective, you could really become distressed, depressed, because bad things do happen. Yeah. The people you wish happiness yeah. for yeah. Uh, may well not find it.
1: Yeah. So, well, I think, you know, I, I mean, I think one of the... Um, oh. One of the genius uh, organizations of our time is, is AA. Yeah. And uh, you'll see it all there. You know, don't be codependent. Um, there's so much wisdom in, yes. in that perspective oh, book
0: is pretty intense.
1: yeah you know and as, I'm sort of like not um, the language I feel most aligned with or you know way of saying things but uh, we have a kind of contemporary psychological understanding of not being codependent doing everything you can but not feeling overly responsible you know and so if we can extend that to the practice of compassion meditation I think it would it would provide a lot of that.
0: No, I think, that's a great, I think that's a very, very good point. Well, Sharon, thank you so much for talking with us, at, at, as always. And thanks for the teaching, actually. <laughs> thank, really you. thank you. Thank no, you. That was fantastic. let yeah, cool. Thank you all.